0: But it was also clear to me that I needed to bring to that conversation my own set of experiences. The experience of the people that I came from, the community that I came from, the community that my mother and father came from.
1: I'm Andrew Goldstein and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This month, the murder trial of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin for the death of George Floyd has brought the racial justice protests of the last summer viscerally back into the public consciousness, reigniting conversations in the news and in households everywhere about the reality of the black experience in America. This weekend... Those same conversations will also have a powerful new point of focus at the Whitney Museum of American Art, where a retrospective of the photographer Dawood Bay will present his magisterial exploration of the subject in the form of his penetrating portraits of black lives from all points on the national compass, in registers from jubilation to agony to ingenious self-invention to blist out hope. Curated by Elizabeth Sherman and SF MoMA curator Corey Keller, and open through October 3rd, the show is titled An American Project, and it is a project that is very much still in the works. It so happens that this is a very big year for Dotwood Bay. The winner of the 2017 MacArthur Genius Grant and a professor at Columbia College, Chicago, the artist has already been the subject of two other retrospectives in his 46-year career— But this one at the Whitney is not only his largest, it's also one of the largest surveys of a black American photographer ever. In other words, this is an event. If that's not enough, there's more. His work is also currently featured in the New Museum in its staging of the late curator Okwi Enwazor's final exhibition, Grief and Grievance. To discuss his life's work, I'm very happy to have Dawood Bey on the show today. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Dawood.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to be joining you, Andrew. Thanks for having me on.
1: So, your show is called An American Project. But before we get into that, I want to start with your own very American story. You were born in Queens, New York, in 1953, and back then your name was David Edward Smickle. What was your upbringing like, and what did your parents do?
0: Well, I guess you could say, to a certain degree, I had a typical Black, middle-class childhood. We grew up in a house with a front yard and a backyard. We didn't exactly have a picket fence, but it was a very suburban kind of childhood, playing in the streets most of the time. Pretty much everyone on the block knew each other. And the block and school were basically my... Little Universe. I grew up in a house full of books, either books that would be in order from the book club. I had the Encyclopedia of American Poetry. My parents ordered the Encyclopedia Britannica. And my dad had his own library that he kept in his space, probably so that I wouldn't get it and start messing with his books. And that became, I think, really interesting when after the second grade. Mandated busing became the law. In order to integrate American schools, the solution was that black kids would be bused into formerly all white schools. And I can definitely say that the shape of my world changed at that moment in very profound ways. The white teachers that I had I don't think that they knew that there was such a thing as a little black boy with a house full of books because uh, what began to happen was that whenever I got an assignment, for example, to write a poem, I got the dictionary of American poetry. Writing a poem, no challenge. And I would turn that poem in and the teacher would look at it rather incredulously and ask me where did you copy this from? And I'm not like, copy a poem? I mean, this isn't calculus. I was clearly not being seen or recognized for who I was. And that basically kept up until I showed up in high school completely pissed off.
1: So was this a conversation that you had in your house about the state of civil rights in America and this idea of America? What way did you think of it? when you were growing up?
0: The way my father explained it very briefly was that you have to be twice as good. That was the operative equation. In order to achieve whatever you're going to achieve because the debt was certainly not stacked in our favor. I mostly remember a lot of anger and frustration attached to that because my dad was an educated man himself. He was an electrical engineer and he was actually in his field one of the first to achieve what he achieved because people didn't believe that a black man being a microwave electronics engineer was something that they probably couldn't even imagine. It was just something that I had to figure out how to carve out. My space, in spite of not being seen and being centered, a guidance counselor, the things that to me I obviously hadn't done. But being one of maybe two or three black kids in a class of, I don't know, maybe 16, I was suspect. Anything, something. I would say the last thing I would say was that uh, being that young. It was a very Twilight Zone-like experience. Because you don't even have the language, really, to conceptualize everything that's happening to you. You just know that these people, they have no idea who you are because the things that they are saying doesn't even make any sense. And yet you had to constantly contend with that.
1: So you grew up in a household that was filled with culture. You had bookcases full of books. You had poetry. What about art? What were your encounters with art like when you were growing up?
0: My encounters with art were pretty minimal. That's something that I discovered on my own. Within my house, it was mostly a deep engagement with books and reading and a quest for knowledge. Knowledge for the pure fun of it. You know, my dad used to say there's no such thing as useless information. And it's something that I find myself repeating every now and then. Like all information becomes useful at some point. My encounter with art was pretty non-existent within my house. It happened for me when I was 16 years old. And uh, I went to the Metropolitan Museum for the first time on my own to see the exhibition them on my mind, that was 1969. And you know, 1968, 1969 in America was just a real socio-political flashpoint. And people were speaking back to institutions in power of all kinds. And that included the museum. So much so that this controversy around this one exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum, ended up on talk radio, it ended up in the local newspaper. And by 1968, 69, I had a developing uh, social consciousness.
1: Just to linger on this for a moment, the show at the time was meant to capture the dynamism of Harlem, but now it's mainly remembered through this lens of its infamous lack of representation by any single black photographer. What was the conversation about this show like at the time that was the flashpoints that you were seeing, you know, on TV and the conversations?
0: It was about Harlem, and there had been several failed meetings to address whether the community itself would have some degree of agency or authorship around the construct of this exhibition that purported to be about them. And those meetings were held, but they inevitably went nowhere, which is why ultimately when the exhibition opened, a picket line was thrown up in front of the museum by various folks from the Harlem communities, and also a group of progressive artists who had organized the Art Workers Coalition and uh, the artist Benny Andrews had organized a group called The Black emergency cultural coalition. And uh, at that point, with the picket lines in front of the Met, that's when I heard about it. That's when I heard it on talk radio. And that's also when I read about it. And being socially engaged and socially aware at that time, I decided to go see what the controversy was about. As fate would have it, on the day I went to see the pickets and to see what the controversy was, there were no pickets at the Met that day. And so I thought about it and decided to go in and see the exhibition. And it seems entirely an act of fate, because quite frankly, had the picket lines been there, I'm not sure I would have the picket lines to go in. Probably not. Maybe, but probably not. And if someone had handed me a sign, I would have started marching around with everyone else. But as it turns out, there were no picket lines that day. So I ran in to the Met, entered the Met for the first time on my own. You no know, young Black teenager, 16 years old, entering into the grand lobby of the Met. And it was quite an intimidating experience. I'd never been in this place on my own had no idea what the lay of the land inside of a museum was. So I just started walking around, and eventually I saw a sign to the second floor for that special exhibition, Harlem, on my mind. I walked up the stairs to the exhibition, and it was a rather profound experience, although I probably wouldn't have called it that at the moment. It was a transformative experience. And it was a timely experience because I had just gotten my first real camera from my godmother the year before. And I would carry it around. I didn't know what to do with it. I barely knew how to operate it. But I would carry it around. And probably because it was cool. It was a camera. It was a real camera. Not an instant matter. It was a real camera. But I had no clue what to do with it, what my subject matter might be, or anything else as far as that went and coming into the large exhibition space and seeing all these pictures of black people on the wall of a museum. Like that was the first thing, was seeing pictures of black people on a wall in a museum. And then not only seeing the photographs of African-Americans on the wall in the museum, but I was also looking at people walking around looking at these photographs. Like, I know you walk around and you look at Starry Night and you look at Van Gogh, Rembrandt. I knew people walked around in museums and looked at those kind of things. I didn't know that people walked around in a museum and looked at photographs of ordinary Black people. So that for me was the transformative moment when I began to connect those pictures to this camera. My mother and father had actually met in Harlem. So I had a very real, you know, family relationship to this place that was now the subject of a museum exhibition. It's not like I had an epiphany moment and figured it all out in a flash, but it was definitely the beginning of the trajectory that I continued on for several decades because the first project that I undertook, which was definitely... uh, related to that experience and my family's history was photographing in Harlem, beginning in 1975. And that exhibition certainly had something to do with that. And it had something to do also with the fact that I wasn't making these pictures to publish them in a newspaper or magazine. My intention all along, even though I had no sense of how that was gonna happen, was that these pictures are gonna hang on the wall in a museum. I didn't know what the process was, but that's where I always envisioned that work.
1: I have to ask, the Harlem On My Mind show is today remembered in large part because it didn't have a single African-American photographer in the show. Did you think about this in a deliberate way when you were going to Harlem to take your own pictures, that it was important that you yourself were a black American taking pictures?
0: I would say definitely, because by the time I started making photographs in Harlem, I started venturing out to galleries, just looking at photographs on the wall in a gallery setting. And even when I went to galleries and saw photographs by people like Irvin Penn, whose work I fell in love with, or Mike Disfarmer, saw the big Abaddon show at Marlboro Gallery, And I was acutely aware of two things. They were not black photographers. And for the most part, there were no black people in their pictures. On the level of picture making, how does one take the experience of the world and turn it into a kind of resonant and coherent visual representation of the world in photographic form? The work was very meaningful and instructive to me in that sense, but it was also clear to me that I needed to bring to that conversation my own set of experiences, the experience of the people that I came from, the community that I came from, the community that my mother and father came from. The only Black photographer that I encountered at that point early on was Roy Caraba. and Caraba was a very singular presence. I encountered his book, the book that he did with Langston Hughes, Sweet Fly Paper of Life, and I immediately latched on to Caraba because, again, his aspirations were the things that I aspired to. He wasn't making these photographs for magazines or newspaper or popular distribution. He was engaged in a conversation with the history of photography and picture making as an expressive form and bring into that his subjects. So Caraba was like a life raft, and I grabbed onto that guy and hung on to him because he was the only one.
1: So how did you go about choosing your subjects? And how did you choose the mood? that you wanted to capture your subjects in?
0: I can answer that partly by something that Wadi said earlier on that I always remembered, which is that you should be able to look at my subjects and see me, and you should be able to look at me and see my subjects. And the work is a kind of visualization of that fundamental belief that Black people have rich interior lives, that they're not just social subjects, and want to make that sense of interiority something that's visible in the work, that kind of complex sense of interiority that situates the Black subject within the broader human conversation. As far as how I would choose something, it was a very instinctive thing. You know, when I started out, I would just look for people that I thought I could make an interesting photograph with. Early on, when I started, I was looking for a subject that clearly embodied a sense of Harlem's past in the present moment. The first successful photograph I made was uh, an older Black man wearing this elegant bowler. And that photograph, to look at it, it could be 1920, it could be 1930, it could be 1940, but it was made in 1976. So I started out clearly making photographs, partly in reference to those photographs that I had seen, which were made in an earlier era, Walker Evans, James Van Der Zee. And those pictures were made in the 1920s and 30s. That was kind of like my visual uh, reference. But then eventually I just started looking for people that I saw instinctively I could make an interesting and compelling photograph with. They usually said yes. Once they said yes, then I was still left with the picture-making problem because then they would say, what do you want me to do? Basically, what I wanted to have them do was to just be themselves in front of the camera. But it was obvious that the introduction of the camera into the social situation changes everything. So I realized that the challenge was, how do I make the camera disappear in this equation?
1: And did you have a trick?
0: No, no tricks, just honest interest. It was a very naked, open, honest I'm interested in you, and I'm photographing in this community. You mind if I make a photograph of you? It. It's only gonna take a few minutes. Eventually I became a very good, I guess you could say director, how to direct people in a performance of themselves. I would always watch people's gesture as I was talking to them. And when they asked me, what do you want me to do? I would usually say something like, But why don't you do that thing you were doing with your hands a few seconds ago? Because that's their gestural behavior. You know, the most interesting things that people do, you can't make it up. So I always pay attention to people's gestural behavior when I'm talking to them before I make the photograph, because that's something that once I'm behind the camera making the picture, I want to bring that back into the photograph. So
1: in 1979... something totally extraordinary happened, which is that 10 years after you saw Harlem on My Mind at the Met, when you were 16 years old, you had your own show at the Studio Museum in Harlem of your own photography of Harlem called Harlem USA. And this was the total opposite of the Met show in that it was a black photographer taking really, truly, deeply felt photographs of black subjects in a museum in the middle of Harlem that was a historically black museum. You know, as a portrait photographer, representation is your subject. But what do you think is the relationship between artistic representation of the kind that you had in that show and political representation?
0: I think they're clearly related. And that's why I wanted to exhibit that work, not elsewhere, which is one of the problematics of the Harlem On My Mind exhibition, but I wanted to exhibit that work in the community in which it had been made, that the people who were the subjects of the photograph could have access to the work, because that was one of the other issues in the Harlem On My Mind exhibition. And so I think using the museum in a very intentional way realizing that the museum is part of the social fabric of the larger community and how to bring the community and the institution into a common conversation. One that in this case was a common self-affirming conversation that also collapsed the space in between the museum and the community. So All of that was something that was very intentional and something that carried over from the experience of that exhibition at the Met and all of it problematic because it gave me a very clear and early sense that the museum is not a benign space. It is part of the power structure that is functioning in the larger society in different ways. And the museum is very much a part of that conversation. And Harlem on the Line gave me both the sense that the museum as an institution in power could be spoken back to, that one could engage the museum, and that one could engage the museum in a very intentional way. So my first thought when I completed that project, when I was about two thirds of the way through the project, I went to the studio museum, showed them work and told them that, you know, I'm in the midst of this project when I completed. I'd love if you guys would consider exhibiting it here. And they were impressed enough with the work that in 1979, I had the first exhibition of the Harlem USA photograph.
1: Wow. Not to get too science fiction-y, but you could even think of the museum as being a kind of reverse camera obscura in that situation, where the people who inside it were part of the photograph.
0: Yeah, I've continued pretty much all of the projects that I've done since 1993. have been done as part of collaborative projects. With museum, but even the Birmingham Project, 2012, that work was facilitated, you know, in collaboration with the Birmingham Museum of Art. And it was first shown 50 years to the day of the dynamiting of the church, 2013. You know, my work is about the photograph, but it's also about a kind of reordering and reimagining of uh, the uh, museum as a social space and how the museum can be made to function in a way that's not separate from the larger social conversation, but through my work, becomes an intrinsic part of that conversation. That goes back to the myth and it's continued for the last, I don't know, almost 50 years.
1: Is that why you have almost exclusively focused on portraiture as your domain of photography?
0: I think for the longest time, Portraiture has been a way for me to both assert within the spaces that my work is exhibiting and to assert the Black presence in those spaces. And it's also given me an anchor for thinking and reimagining ways in which the Black subject can be visualized and conceptualized in photographic form. I've always wanted my work to be uh, firmly anchored in the very real social world, even as I'm very deeply engaged with the aesthetics and the craft of the medium as well. But anchored in the real social world is what keeps the work functioning in a meaningful way for me. But I'm equally engaged in both, an ongoing investigation of the potentials the photographic medium, and then attaching that to the black subject, the young subject, or in some other way, the things that I'm very much interested in that are a part of the larger world that we live in.
1: I know that one of your subjects everybody wants to talk about, and that is uh, the mercurial artist David Hammons. And there's a sweet within your larger body of work of these incredibly important photographs of David Hammonds in the studio, but also making work, chronicling his performances. And I wonder, how did you come to meet him? And what were the ideas and what were the conversations that shaped the portraits that you made of him?
0: Well, I met David probably when he was an artist in residence at the Studio Museum in Harlem. The Studio Museum in Harlem is really where I began to see my community. It's the first place where I began to meet other Black artists, both my contemporaries and those who are a generation older, like David. The Studio Museum in Harlem has uh, figured very prominently in my life, both professionally and personally. I probably met David when he was artist in residence at Studio Museum, for whatever reason, didn't get to know him too well then. But when just above Midtown Gallery opened in 1976, 1977, And then from spending uh, time at just above Midtown Gallery, that's when I really got to know David. I distinctly remember the day that we really got to know each other, the day he said, let's go have a drink. At some point, you know, we decided we needed to just one-on-one sit down and kind of have a conversation, the conversation that we'd never had, a more personal conversation. So I definitely got to know David very well through both of us being a part of the community that gathered at just above midtime. The pictures themselves happened rather organically. Back in those days, I always had my camera with me. Always. I did not step out the door without my camera. If David was doing something, he would never tell me too much. He would just tell me where to be and when. Something's going to happen, 12 noon, Saturday. Okay, I'll be there. From my perspective, it was largely unplanned, although David had a very clear idea of what he was going to do. The relationship was one of David doing his work and me figuring out how to give it some kind of coherent photographic form. The only way that these performances were ever going to be known or seen beyond that very transitory moment was through the photograph. So I I think my role was to to be present and to figure out how to do these various performances or actions that David was doing, how to give them some resonant and articulate sense of form in a photograph. You know, that was my part of it. Because that was the thing that was going to endure, and that's how people are going to come to know what would have been otherwise invisible, interesting, mythic work.
1: One thing about your work that I think resonates across many of your series is that you have a great eye for style, for well-dressed people. Did you ever involve yourself in the staging of the photographs, or were you mainly involved in the framing?
0: Well, the only staging as such that I would do would be to look around and figure out where I was going to make the photograph just before I approached the person. Because I didn't know how much time they were going to give me. So I needed to figure out the basic geometry of the photograph, the space in relation to the figure. You know, things that I'd actually gotten a lot of from looking at Romare Bearden's work. There's a book that uh, Roméo Bearden wrote with Carl Holty, called The Painter's Mind, in which he talks about the structure of his painting, the underlying geometry, on top of which he then lays these kind of fluid and animated figures. And that always was one of my points of reference the geometry of the space, and then asking that person, kind of casually, although I've actually thought about it, you yeah, why don't you stand here? Because that's where I can see the shape of the thing that I want to make. So they would stage in that regard. In the sense that in the street portraits, no one is standing where they were standing before I approached them. So the staging was really... Uh, in terms of figuring out the space and the shape of the photograph, and then very gently directing the quality of their performance, the gestural performance, and then psychological performance in terms of how they relate to the camera. Because it is a performance, they're not looking at me, they're looking into the lens. So it's up to me to direct the way and the quality with which they engage the lens. I just had all kinds of ways of doing that. If I wanted a different level of intensity, I would probably say, why don't you look a little deeper into the lens? And all of a sudden, they're looking, you know, there's just a different level of intensity that builds. It all took place within no more than 10 minutes, usually five minutes or so. It was a very casual encounter that required me to think very quickly and to imagine the shape of the photograph even as I was talking to the person.
1: You were talking about how you want to have the portrait subject sit with themselves. And I think this is something that you really very harrowingly see in your Birmingham project, which you created to mark the 50th anniversary of the 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, by a white supremacist, which killed four black children and led to the deaths of two more. And in this series, you paired adults and children in these incredibly powerful diptychs with the children being the age of those killed in the bombing. So can you tell me the origin of this body of work and how you decided to approach the portrait in this split of generations?
0: Well, the Birmingham Project begins with a book called The Movement that was published in 1964 by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee my mother and father brought that book home after going to see James Baldwin lecture at the church that I grew up in, in Queens. The book was being sold as a fundraiser for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And so they brought the book home and I started looking through this book which was a book of photographs of and about the Civil Rights Movement. And they had asked the writer and playwright, Lorraine Hansberry, if she would write a text to weave these photographs together into a book form. There were a number of really horrific photographs in that book, including lynching photographs. There was one picture in the book that seared its way into my consciousness. Sarah Jean Collins, who was one of the four girls who had been killed in the dynamiting of the church, and she was lying in a hospital bed immediately after the dynamiting of the church with these gauze bandages on her eyes. Her sister and three other girls had been killed. She had been there, too, but she wasn't as close to the side of the room on which the dynamite had been planted. So she was wounded, but not fatally, as the others had been. And I saw that picture and it just seared its way into my psyche. I always say that I don't know if I intuit it at the moment I was looking at that picture But I was pretty much the same age as the girl in that photograph. That may very well be why it implanted itself so deeply in my psyche. The Birmingham Project begins with that photograph, because several decades later, that photograph came flashing back to me. I had thought about it over the years, and then at some point I must have found some place to bury it in my subconscious. And something shook it loose. And I told myself I needed to go and see the place where this happened at the very least. And then beyond that, if I could figure out what I might make in response to that, I needed to make some work in Birmingham. And so I planned a weekend visit to Birmingham, Alabama. I didn't know anyone there. I'd never been there before. I needed to go on a weekend so that on Sunday, I could pay a visit to 16th Street Baptist Church and attend a church service there. started meeting people there, spoke to the minister briefly after the church service, which uh, gave me an immediate sense of how complicated this was. In terms of my coming there with an idea about something that had happened five decades before, that was my idea. Because when I mentioned to the minister that I wanted to make some work there, and he said, what do you want to make work about? And I mentioned the dynamiting of the church. And he kind of shook his head. And he said, "Just, just stop right here. You know, we're, we're not about all that business. How could they be? That was something that happened in 1963. I'm talking to him in 2000. What? And it kind of brought me, kind of immediately, to the present moment, and began to make me think about how I might reconcile the past and the present in this work." Over several years, I started making periodic visits to Birmingham, doing research, spending time at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. In doing research, I found out that two young African-American boys had been killed that same day, which I didn't know when I went down there the first time. I knew what most people know, the four little girls, September 15, 1963. That was the extent of my knowledge. And so over the years, I started spending more time there, meeting people in the community. I then contacted the Birmingham Museum of Art to see if they might be interested in partnering on this vague idea that I had to make some work about the history of the community in which they were situated in. Obviously by that time, I had been working that way for quite some time, drawing the museum into a conversation in which they become a partner, not just in the exhibiting of the work, but in the facilitating and the making of the work that then ends up being exhibited there, but to bring a whole other set of relationships to the exhibition moment initially trying to figure out exactly how does one make work that is up to the weight of that moment, that is worthy of that moment, that responds to that moment in a responsible way. And I didn't want to just document the church. And so I decided the four girls, not even thinking about the two boys, and most people don't even know about, but the four girls, was something of a historical abstraction, something called the four little girls. The sense of individual and physical and palpable presence was not something that I felt really existed. They were a kind of tragic mythic presence. I decided I wanted to make some work to give those four girls a more palpable and tangible presence. youngest girl killed was 11 years old and the other three were 14. And I wanted to make work that gave a sense of what exactly does an 11-year-old black girl look like? What does a 14-year-old black girl look like? Not a four-little girl, but this girl who could have been that girl. And so we started doing outreach, just reaching out into the community to find young people who were the same age as those six young people who had been killed that day, but still left the work feeling conceptually incomplete because it didn't quite address the tension between past and present. It didn't quite resonate for me in terms of both the lives and the possibilities that were cut short. And so I decided to also make portraits of African-Americans in Birmingham who were the ages that those young people would have been had they not been killed. So the girl would be 11 years old and the older person would be 61 years old. And it was particularly important to me that they be that age card for it to really resonate with me, I wanted them to be that urge. The other part about the Birmingham Project is thinking about where the photographs are going to be made, and they're made in two different locations. One of the locations is the Birmingham Museum itself, and this time I anchored that to a very specific historical moment. The Birmingham Museum, within Birmingham's social history, had during the Civil Rights Era had been like all public institutions in the South at that time. It was a once segregated institution. And so I wanted that piece of Birmingham's history to be part of the narrative in which the work was made. And then also the communal space of the Black church, a very different kind of social space, ended up having a very productive conversation with the minister of Bethel Baptist Church, which was a very progressive church in Birmingham. It was the church that was pastored by the activist minister, Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. And that minister, I have to say, unlike the minister at 16th Street Baptist Church, fully embraced the project. So. Those became the two pieces of Birmingham social history that were the sites that I wanted to find the uh, portraits.
1: Now, the thing that I find most fascinating about these portraits is that what you would expect is that the older folks would be mournful, somber, really full of the history of the moment and that the kids would be kids. But instead, the older folks seem very present. There's a sense of resilience. And the children seem mournful. They're very pensive. They're the ones who seem to be really internalizing the history of the moment.
0: What's going on there? Well, what's going on is that each person looking at the work tends to look at it through the eyes of their own subjectivity. I will say that in talking to the young people who are in those photographs. My first question to them was, how many of you know what happened on September 15, 1963? And from the 11-year-olds to the 14-year-olds, every single one of them was acutely aware of that history. I think when they came to be photographed, knowing that I was making work in the context of that moment. That's what they brought to the moment. They bring themselves to that moment, and we make something together.
1: So while you were creating the Birmingham Project, 17-year-old Florida teenager Trayvon Martin was shot and killed by the police. And we all know now that his police killing was the event that set in motion the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, culminating in the protests over police violence that swept the country last year and that now have led to the trial of Derek Chauvin. Since the issues of race, equity, and justice have come to the center of the national conversation since then, how do you think about this period of reckoning that the United States is going through intersecting with your work?
0: Well, for me, the way I experience the moment, the way I participate in the moment is through my work. And by making work that keeps these issues present, that keeps these questions, both about uh, Black representation, questions, Uh, Black agency, and the continued assertion through my work that clearly Black lives do matter. My work becomes my vehicle and platform for asserting within the spaces that my work operates in this idea and this set of issues that you're talking about. And certainly within the space of a mainstream museum as an institution in power, that's been an ongoing conversation. And it's also the reason why, for all of these decades, that my work has been mostly focused on a conversation inside of the museum as a public space, as opposed to the gallery. But I'm I'm mostly interested in making interventions and disruptions into the notion of American art history and those objects that are presumed to have a certain value because they are in a museum.
1: So when people come to the Whitney Museum to see this show, there's one body of work that I think will potentially knock their socks off and be something that they haven't expected. And this is your series, The Night Coming Tenderly Black. And it's this tour de force that is unlike anything you've done in that there are no figures, it's not portraiture, it's landscape photography that you learn is charting a path that the Underground Railroad took through Ohio. But instead of being literal documentation of the places where there were safe houses, it's actually these vignettes of what you might have seen if you were a fugitive from slavery. And you were looking out through this darkened clearing under the stars or over a stream. Where did you get this idea?
0: Well, Night Coming Tenderly Black is a imagining of the landscape of fugitivity as if through the eyes of an escaping African American making their way through that landscape towards Lake Erie, and then by way of Lake Erie, freedom on the other side in Canada. The warp conceptually comes from two different sources. One of them is the final stanza in a poem by Langston Hughes, and the poem ends, night coming tenderly, black like me. And it reframes this idea of blackness as a tender space. Night coming tenderly, black like me. coming imposingly, not coming intimidatingly, but night, coming tenderly, Black. And so I I thought about this idea of the Blackness of the landscape as being a space of tender embrace around those fugitive African-Americans making their way through that landscape. And also when I thought about the narrative of blackness and the black subject in space and material blackness in a photograph, that brings me right back to Roy Carabas photographs. Mm -hmm. Because there are a number of Roy Carabas photographs that are very darkly printed and There are photographs of black people moving around in and coming out of this beautiful blackness of space. It's kind of analogous to that tender black space that Langston Hughes described. And so those became my conceptual and material points of reference. I was trying to imagine and envision that terrain not as what it is or what it is now, but trying to reimagine that terrain as what it might have been and then to make something that is the material equivalent of that.
1: So I have one last question for you. Your work has really been about representation. In the art world, there is a craze for Black figuration. Are you encouraged by the state of representation in the art field? How are you thinking about these two tracks of politics and cultural representation?
0: I think I'm very encouraged. One of the things... That I think has always been true is that there is a kind of accelerated creative impetus that comes out of great adversity. And I think for Black artists and Black people, we've always functioned under circumstances of adversity. You know, there's a long, unbroken history of Black expressive culture that goes back to the plantation and goes back to Africa right up to this moment. So I think that's one thing. The greater participation or the greater visibility of Black artists at this moment, you no, know, there's been a very real struggle to bring that into being. And to some degree, it's focused on Black Federation, but there are also uh, Black artists, as there always have been, who are working out of a more conceptual kind of framework in the production of their work. There is no monolithic way of working as a Black artist, even as the market might sometimes encourage that. Because if we think about Julie Milletou's work, if we think about Kevin Beasley's work, if we think about Triquasa Dyson's work, and if we go back in history, if we think about Alma Thomas's work, if we think about Martin Perrier's work, I came up very close to Jack Witten, Mel Edwards, and William T. Williams it's a very important part of Black expressive culture. So the market might at any given moment encourage one or the other, but I think the truth of the matter is that Black artists have always been engaged and involved in bringing their work into the conversation in myriad forms, conceptually, and materially, and I think that that is very much true right now, which is uh, one of the reasons I'm, I'm really happy to be uh, having my exhibition at the Whitney at the same time that Julie Moraitre's exhibition is up at the Whitney. Uh, her very complex visual, conceptual, and material language Uh, for making her work is very much a part of the broader practice that black artists have always been engaged in.
1: Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. Your story is incredible. Your work is extraordinary. I look forward to seeing your retrospective thank you very much for coming on the show
0: okay thank you for having me on and it's a pleasure
1: that's it for this week's episode of the art angle if you like what you heard you can subscribe to the show on apple podcasts spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts also take a moment to rate and review us it will help other listeners discover what we're doing the art angle is produced by sonia manalili tim schneider and caroline goldstein thanks for listening and see you next week